Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. So this weekend, my partner and I went on a little drive to a town called Chipping Campton. It's in Gloucestershire. It's in the Cotswolds. If you've ever been in the Cotswolds, they have this wonderful yellow limestone that all the houses are made of. It's very attractive. And Chipping Camden is one of these attractive little towns. And we went down, we checked out some of the food shops, and we had a tea and a coffee and some brownies. And I took my camera and I took a few pictures. On the way back, I was noticing how attractive some of the fields are out here in the country when you've got clouds, when it's late afternoon, it's not too dark. And you've got this muted light that the fields are either harvested or they're ready to be harvested. And, you know, so the colors of the field are different. And naturally, I was thinking photography. And, and I was realizing, uh, if anyone follows me on in Instagram, you've seen that I publish a lot of photos of fields because I live next to a farm. And my farmers grow wheat and beans and Brussels sprouts and things like that. And I find this a fascinating subject. And as, as we were driving back, I was looking at these fields. I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to do a small project. I'm going to take pictures in fields. And I'm going to take pictures, try to get the horizon between the field and the sky about mid-frame. And I'm going to try and do a series of photos to try and get the different gradations of black and white. Because obviously I'm going to do this in black and white. It's almost black and white when you have that kind of weather anyway. But then I was thinking, you get this problem of the lighter sky and the darker field, and I've never really messed with HDR. So I was trying to figure out what the best solution is, whether I should get what's called a graduated neutral density filter, or whether I should just shoot a number of pictures, overexposing, underexposing, etc., and do HDR. But I don't have any experience with HDR. Unfortunately, I know someone who does. Who's that? Some guy I know who wrote a book about some HDR thing who knows a lot more about it than I do. Oh, wait, I did. So explain <laughs> to me how this works. I know a lot of people throw around the term HDR, and HDR is often this thing that looks like kind of a comic book type drawing where all the clouds have like fur around them. And I don't want them to look like that. In my situation, I don't know how familiar you are with this type of filter, a graduated neutral density filter. It's a filter that has a sort of a line in the middle, a soft line or a, or a harder line, and above it, it gradually gets darker, and below it, it's clear. So you would use this, the clear part would be either the sea or the field, and the darker part, the sky, to mute the sky by one or two stops. But do I need to go to the trouble of using the filter, or should I do HDR? And if I do HDR, how do I do it? So what you're describing is a very common problem. We've got different levels of exposure. The filter that you're talking about is a physical way of fixing this problem. It's great. It's been used for a long time. You know, obviously, uh, it, it predates computers, software, uh, photo editing. On the other hand, it's something that you have to carry around and it's something that you have to get out. Now, in your experience, I think that would be perfectly fine because you're going out with that intention. Like, you know, you're going to have bright sky darker foreground, you know, that, that level below the horizon. And so in that case, the graduated actual piece of glass would be helpful. Right. And I'll also be going out 
in a car with a tripod. So setting it up won't be too hard because I've looked at these and there are all sorts of pieces you need to make these work. It's not just a screw-on filter. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually can get some screw-on filters that, that, that might do it, but... But the problem is that the middle has to perfectly line up with your shot, whereas with the ones that slide into a filter holder, you can put that, that separation anywhere in your shot, depending on how you want to compose. Exactly, exactly. And so if you are being very deliberate about it, you can get great results. But since the advent of post-processing, there are also lots of ways to counter that without having to resort to actual glass in front of your lens. So the problem with having that filter is that that's what you're capturing. The sensor is reading that, and so it's reading the artificially darkened sky or artificially darkened foreground. And so then any post-processing that you're doing is on top of that. Right. So that's burned into the raw file or the JPEG file. Exactly. Exactly. And so you know, it's certainly something that you can work with, but you're sort of uh, working against yourself if you then go back into your photo software and you think, oh, you know what? That was too dark. I need to bring that up a level and then you can introduce noise and, you know, all of that. And that's another thing, because looking up these filters, there are all different levels from a third of a stop to a stop to two stops to four stops. And how do you know how many stops you need in a given scene? I think it's the filter industrial complex that wants you to buy the whole set. <laughs> and these filters are not cheap. The good ones, you can spend several hundred dollars buying a set of filters like this. So my preference, because I just don't have several hundred dollars lying around, is to just take a shot either with a filter that isn't graduated. So you want to cut the light down a bit because it's just too bright. So you'll put that in, in front of your lens and that's, that's one way of controlling your exposure. Or just take a darker shot that you can improve in post-processing. You can bring up the levels, you can bring up the shadows. However, as you know, at some point, like if the sky is just too bright, you bring it really, really dark, pulling that detail out of the shadows is going to pull out a lot of noise and, and lead to something that you don't really want. So that brings us to HDR, high dynamic range. The dynamic range being the space between the darkest and the lightest elements of a picture. Because the photosensors can only capture a certain level of dynamic range. And granted, they've gotten much, much better in recent years. But the idea behind HDR is... I can't get this scene at the exposure that I want in one shot. Well, we're talking about digital photography, so we're not limited to just one shot. So what you do is you take two or more shots. You take a bright version, which gives you well-exposed tones in the darker areas of your, of your scene. And then you take a darker version, same exact shot. Preferably, you do this on a tripod so you're not moving things around. And that's a darker one that gives you a good exposure of your really bright values. So you want to expose, in one case, for the foreground that's darker, and then you want to expose for the sky that's lighter. So basically, you change your, your exposure point on your camera. But do you need to do it that way? Because I think, I think our Fujifilm cameras have an HDR bracketing thing where you can tell the camera to shoot a number of photos at one-stop difference. So maybe you're shooting at whatever you're seeing, whatever you're metering on, say it's the foreground, and then it's going to shoot more photos, one stop darker, two stop darker, three stop darker, etc. Yeah, so we're describing the same thing 
with the, with the Fuji, and I think most every camera now has has some sort of bracketing function. That's just automating it, and sometimes that's perfectly fine. I've found that occasionally just being able to to adjust the exposures just by one stop sometimes isn't enough, or sometimes I want maybe you know five shots. So I want to be able to change the exposure in a third of a stop between each shot. Some people go crazy. They'll make like like 10 different bracketed exposures. I don't quite understand the reasoning behind that. And that might be just because older software didn't do as good a job as, as modern software does. But you want at least two shots of different exposures so that you get a well-exposed area in both your dark and your light areas. So I'm thinking if I'm going there with all this trouble with the tripod and setting everything up, it doesn't cost me any more to take five or eight or 10 shots. Does that allow you to, so assuming that the darkest one is one range of the photo and the lightest is another, but if you have more photos, does that allow the HDR software to fill in in the areas that are in between more efficiently? Yeah, I think so. It's because I have to say, I have never done this. I have never done HDR. Ah, okay. It's sort of accepted wisdom to take three shots where you want one shot that's just a general exposure for the entire scene. And maybe you're going to have some blown out highlights or some really dark areas, but but you have that one sort of mid-tone version. And then you take one that's a stop or two brighter or a stop or two darker. Sometimes I found myself not using the automatic bracketing and just adjusting the the exposure compensation manually because, for example, I might want something that is two stops brighter because I'm in a really dark scene, you know, which would then extend the shutter time. And there you just do it by eye. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you know that you're getting your bright values, you're getting your dark values, and you're just expanding that palette. So then later on, when you bring it into software, you have software that will merge those together. And that's where the HDR comes in, where it's overlaying those images in such a way and and tone mapping it so that all that visual range, all that, that light is there in the file and there's more information for you to work with. So there are lots of apps that do this. Now, I mostly use Apple Photos for my edits. It doesn't do HDR like this. I use Affinity Photo. I know they have an HDR feature. I don't use Lightroom, which has an HDR feature, I'm pretty sure. What other apps are there? Lightroom Classic has has actually a really good mode for making HDRs. Lightroom CC does not, but Adobe has said that they're going to bring that feature to Lightroom CC eventually. The other one that comes to mind, and this is the one that I, I wrote a book about a long time ago, is Aurora HDR. This is by Skylum Software, formerly MacFun, and it is a tool designed specifically just to make HDRs. And it, it, it's actually a really good tool. It has a lot of features and a lot of controls that you actually find in Luminar because they've basically taken their, their imaging engines and, and merged it all together. It has some things that are more specific to HDRs. It's just been, been designed that way. And also, it works as a complement to Luminar. So why do so many HDR photos look like acid trips? <laughs> That's a great question. I think because originally the techniques for doing this were actually very difficult. Like you had to go into Photoshop and do a lot of different things. You had to build channels and masks and it was a big 
darn deal if he really wanted to do this. Channels and masks and layers, oh my. And so uh, we, we should probably mention a photographer named Trey Ratcliffe. Uh, our readers may have heard of, of him. And he, he kind of pioneered this use of HDR and basically got very famous for it. In the early days, it was really cool that you could just expand that dynamic range. So people were like, yeah, expand it. Like, I want to see everything. Well, the problem is you saw detail in everything. And they looked artificial and the the color and the saturation would just get boosted because, hey, why not? Like, we've got all that data there. And it had its sort of artistic look. But very quickly, once the technique got more adopted by people, it got abused or people just, you know, didn't have a sense of, of, of when to rein things back. And so honestly, like HDR sort of turned into a bad word because the results were just garish and terrible and awful. <laughs> and so having tools like like Aurora HDR, when it first came out, you could you can absolutely go crazy and apply filters and presets that just make it look like you've landed on Jupiter. And that's Great, like go for it. But fortunately, they also built in a lot of tools so that you don't have to go that far. Because at least for every HDR that I've made, I'm really just trying to boost a little bit. I want a little bit more detail, a little more light in some area. I'm not trying to make you see every single crack and and dot and pixel that was there because you know it it just doesn't look natural okay jeff you're going to put a couple of photos in the show notes and some bad ones too you can put some bad <laughs> ones in to show people as well it would be good if you have originals like here's the dark one here's the light one that you combine to make something else we're going to take a quick break and when we come back jeff is going to explain how to take hdr photos with one shot Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for PhotoActive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE, or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will, too. Okay, so that was HDR, the complicated way with a real camera. Did you hear the air quotes around real? A traditional camera. <laughs> a traditional camera, a traditional camera, yes. There are new ways to take HDR, and in particular, Apple is, well, they're not the only smartphone manufacturer to make quality HDR, but they have come out with some new interesting HDR features, you actually have one of these new iPhone XS pocket computers, don't you? I do, I do. And uh, Apple would say it's an iPhone XS, and I'm going to actually go either way because it's actually fun to say iPhone XS. Yes, it is. For for all sorts of reasons. It's also fun to say iPhone tennis. Oh, but... right, right. You know what? That is the first time I've heard that, iPhone tennis. <laughs> anyway, how does the iPhone do it? Because they've had HDR for several 
I'm thinking back to the iPhone 4. I mean, HDR has been around for a while, but now they have this thing called smart HDR. Is it good? Is it really smart? It's good, and it's really smart. So basically, what, what Apple is doing is, is exactly what we just described earlier, only they're doing it super quickly and automatically. The phone is, is still taking multiple shots, a light and a dark version, and then merging them together. The thing is, rather than you merging it together in software later, the phone and you know its processor and its image signal processor and the, the, the whole system that Apple has built just around the camera is doing all of this for you. The little hamsters inside the iPhone are spinning the wheels to make it happen really fast. Very little hamsters. That's why it gets hot. Nano hamsters. <laughs> That's why the phone gets hot after you've been using it for a while, because the, the yeah. hamsters get tired. So it's doing this very, very quickly. In fact, with the iPhone XS, when it was first announced, uh, Phil Schiller, I believe, said that every time you take a shot with the iPhone, it's performing either one trillion or five trillion calculations per second. Okay, but don't drink the Kool-Aid because what that means is he's counting each single pixel and the number of calculations on it. It's not a trillion calculations for the entire photo. It's all the pixels that add up. And if it's 12 million pixels is that it 12 megapixels if it's 12 million pixels you know multiply that to get a trillion it's not that impressive wait a minute but apple is the master of using exaggerated marketing terminology you're saying this is marketing there's marketing involved here yes it is <laughs> yes but there's courage behind it oh, oh boy that said it is working very fast the the big difference with the 10s is that rather than just taking like three shots and merging them together into an hdr it's it's taking a lot more than that it's taking i think they're calling them interframes which is basically like it is taking little tiny slices of videos not not video it's it, it it's still they're still still shots <laughs> right, but a video is just a series of still shots as well, isn't it? But, but then what it's doing is it's taking these at different exposures to create that HDR effect. Now, one of the upsides to this uh, and what makes smart HDR better than just HDR is that all of these little interframes are shot at a very high speed. In fact, Apple has increased the ISO in general in order to get higher shutter speeds. And then it's taking that and it's, it's merging them all together and then doing some noise reduction to compensate for that. But what that means is you can take a, an HDR shot of things that are in motion and not have them be blurred. Because the problem with HDR, when you're out in the fields, you don't have to worry about this because you're gonna have- When it's on a tripod and it's not moving. If there are things in the scene that are moving, those will often be blurred because from one shot to another, perhaps it's a second or a half a second between exposures. And maybe the light exposure is itself a full second or longer, depending on the scene. Well, that's great when you're doing a nice landscape. If you're trying to get people or even, you know, a, a nice scene that has people in it, you're going to have blurs. And there are various ways of compensating for that. Aurora HDR you know, has tools and all that. But with the phone, because what you're ending up with is just still one image, one smart HDR image. Being able to, to capture all those interleaved exposures means that it can then pick out the ones that are clearest because it, it figures out which ones are in focus and basically blend all of those into a computationally 
created smart HDR picture that has better values, higher tonal range throughout, and you don't have a lot of that that weird ghosting that you might see. Yeah, because that's one of the problems with over-exaggerated HDR photos. They get these halos around everything. Yeah, yeah. That's In fact, if you ever see a shot and, and you have those sorts of halos, that's the first sign that, that it's been processed or over-processed as an HDR. One of the things that I also discovered while I was working on this article was it doesn't seem to use smart HDR either at all or at least to the extent that it normally does if you're taking shots in burst mode. So, you know, when you hold your finger down on the shutter button on the iPhone, it's it's shooting, I don't even know what the rate is, but it's super quickly, and it just doesn't have enough time to do the full smart HDR. I think most people don't know that you can shoot burst mode on the iPhone, so hold your iPhone up, look at the LCD, put your thumb or your finger on that white shutter button and hold it there, and it'll just take a lot of pictures until you let it go. It might be 8 or 10 or 12 per second. And this is great when you're shooting a picture of something moving, your kids are playing and you want to catch them in a particular moment, a particular expression, but you can never really time that perfectly with a normal camera unless it's in burst mode. So doing that with the iPhone, it's very smooth and it really, it turns out good results. Even just if you're taking portraits of someone, I would always recommend using burst mode because you've got three or four people and you're taking a picture, one of them will have their eyes closed because they'll be in mid-blink when you shoot the picture. So if you do it in burst mode, you'll definitely get one picture where all the eyes are open. And this also applies if somebody hands you their phone and says, hey, can you take a picture of us? Do them a favor. Do burst mode so they can pick which ones. And also, you can go to episode four and learn more about this because we've talked about all the different uh, shooting modes. Okay, we're going to have some links in the show notes, particularly to Jeff's article, to the various software solutions that we've discussed, to we don't need to link to the Apple iPhone XS because everyone knows where to find that. I look forward to trying this out because the filter idea is interesting. It's like it's the artisanal way of doing it, right? It's it's the old-fashioned hand-hewn photography. But it's it's fraught with estimation. If your ND filter is not the right number of stops, it won't work. And you might still need to do two shots or more in order to get the darker bit light enough. So I'm interested in trying the HDR. I'll use Affinity Photo because that's what I have. I won't have time to do anything before this episode is released on Friday, but maybe next week I'll come back and talk about it and, and show off a photo. I also want to point out a couple more things. I mentioned earlier that sensors have improved. And what that has meant in many cases, I've been out in a scene where I would shoot an HDR just because like, I know that, that this area is going to be dark. I know that I'm going to have to do some HDR processing on this to get the exposure that I have in my head. Well, there are times when these sensors are capturing enough data that you don't really need to do HDR. So the the great thing is you can get the best of both worlds. Take your, your, your regularly exposed shot and assume that you could probably get what you want out of it. But then take another batch of brackets just to be sure because it's it's easy enough to do. And the other thing I wanted to mention with the, the iPhone XS, there's a, a bit of an oddity because as I was shooting... I knew that I was going to be in 
circumstances where smart HDR would have to kick in. Um, my family and I went to a local beach here in Seattle, Golden Gardens, and went at dusk. It turned out to be a really lovely sunset, and there was a lot of low light but sort of bright sky areas that I knew would trigger the HDR mode. And when I was done and I was looking at my photos in the Photos app, nothing was marked as HDR. And so, of course, because I was doing this to do a gallery for this article, of course, I panicked and I was like, oh, what did I do wrong? I forgot to turn it on. I forgot to turn on the phone. And so what's curious is Apple has basically assumed this technology is so good, this is going to be the default. And so it's on at first, whether you want it or not. And it's not even marking things as HDR anymore because it's just the shot. Now, you can change that, and it turns out if you go into uh, settings and then camera on the phone, there's an option to turn smart HDR on and off. If you turn it off, then you get sort of the older style of, of interface where there's an HDR button in the camera app, and you can choose whether that's on or off. Or when it's set to automatic, it'll pop up a little tag that says... I'm using HDR mode now. If you do that, you don't get the the full smart HDR effect, but that's okay because actually some people think that it's it's a little bit overdone. The other option to point out is you can set it so that it also saves the original as a separate image. And when you do that, then it will tag the smart HDR with an HDR badge so that you know which is which. And on older phones, you have similar options, auto HDR on and off and keep normal photo on and off as well. So you can turn off auto HDR on older phones, but even if you turn it on, it's not as smart as the iPhone XS. What's interesting about the DP review article that I wrote is a lot of people in the comments really sort of rail against smart HDR just in general. I will say I love DP review and I will blanket say I love DP reviews readers, but the comment sections can just be crazy. I love DP reviews, articles and reviews, but the forums, uh, I think yeah. I said this before, they're toxic. You know the 80-20 rule? Well, it's 20% normal people and 80% <laughs> fanatics in the forums on that website. Well, and, and it's interesting, you know, watching my article after it was published, the initial round of, of comments were all sort of talking about the subject, talking about the features and all that. And then a couple of days passed and then it, it was, you know, people going off on, you know, well, what is real photography? Computational. Every types of photography is computational because... Unless it's film. Film, that's real artisanal photography. That's real artisanal photography, and we did everything in camera and never changed anything in post. Anyway, one of the things that, that people did point out is, for some people, the smart HDR look seems a little bit too processed. I disagree. I think that, that it does a pretty good job of capturing that dynamic range. And what's important, I think, to note for this discussion and there too is, yes, you can absolutely go out with your gear and take multiple brackets and play with it in software and, and do all of that with your traditional camera. Like That's a great way to go. You're going to end up with higher resolution files. You have more flexibility. The iPhone version is very good, but it's also really designed so that anybody not just photographers, not just the people who are super gearhead photographers. Anybody can go take a picture, and they can take a good picture, and it's going to result in a better picture than they probably would have gotten with a phone that's three or four years old. And that's the point of smart HDR. You don't have to think about it. You just know that, hey, 
I went to my friend's wedding and I got some pretty good pictures. Yeah. So it's time for our snapshots. Jeff, what's on your radar this week? On my radar is fortunately something that I don't need right away, but I always have handy, is software for rescuing photos off of a memory card. This is Rescue Pro. It's by SanDisk. I'm sorry, Rescue Pro Deluxe. This is software that will go and look at every sector of your memory card in case something has happened. Now, surprisingly, SD cards are rather robust. You can put them through the wash, but sometimes, you know, we're talking computers, sometimes a bit goes screwy and your card may say that it's been erased or it can't be read. And all those photos that you have seem to be gone. Well, don't just jump to that conclusion. This little app runs on your Mac, you plug it in, can just go and pull the, the, the raw data off and does a really good job of, of saving those photos that would otherwise be gone. I've only needed to do that once, and I, I don't know if I used the same software. I found something on the internet, and it worked, and it was surprising. The reason I have this is when you buy a memory card from SanDisk, this comes as a free download. I don't think it's something you can use forever. It's probably like, you know, you, you get a license for a year or whatever. But if you already need to buy a memory card anyway, you will probably get some sort of rescue software with it. Kirk, how about you this week? Well, I just ordered a new lens today, believe it or not, but that's not going to be my snapshot. I bought a, a 23 millimeter F2 lens from Fujifilm's refurb store. I'd been waiting for this to be available on refurb. It's about 25% less from Fuji. I've bought refurb lenses from them in the past. But what I did buy for this project of shooting fields and sky is a polarizing filter. I think if anyone uses a filter other than to protect the lens, and I'm one of those people who uses a filter pr to protect the lens, we could do a whole show about that. I think the polarizing filter is probably the best filter you can get. What it does is it cuts down on reflections, but it also cuts down on certain types of light in clouds. It'll cut the reflections off a lake, a river, a waterfall, but also when you point it at the clouds, and you turn the filter, because you have to turn it to get the right angle, you'll notice that you get more detail, more relief in the clouds. Polarizing filters also give you the most, the, the richest blue sky possible. But one thing you need to understand is that they only work when you're, is it at a 90 degree angle to the sun? So depending on where you're looking and where the sun is, it's going to have more or less of an effect. But polarizing filters are great for landscape shots because they do bring out contrast. And if I'm going to be shooting in, I'm thinking wintry weather, so a lot of times it's going to be clouds. And if I'm going to be shooting like that, I want it to not be as monotonous as it would be without a polarizing filter. You can put it on and take it off as you need. It's, it's, it's very easy to use. You don't need to make too many calculations like with a neutral density filter. It does cut down the amount of light that comes into your lens by a stop or two, depending. But for most outdoor photos, a polarizing filter can be very useful. That's something that I relied on the first time I went on a on a landscape photo workshop. I didn't have any any other filters, but I had this this one polarizer. And it wasn't ideal, but it definitely cut down light. It helped bring out some of the some of the details, especially when you know shooting water, especially. Um, you know, it, it sort of cuts down that 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 white glare. And uh, you know, it's invaluable. And polarizing filters while some apps give you a sort of a faux polarizing filter, it's really not an effect that you can do in software. It's something you have to do on the camera. It's just too complicated. So I, I actually decided to spend more money this time on a polarizing filter. In the past, I'd bought cheap ones, and I bought a Hoya Pro 1 digital circular polarizing filter. 
it costs 38 pounds. It says on Amazon, it's 65% off. I used to spend 10 pounds or something for filters like that, but I decided I want something a little bit better because I'm going to be a little bit more attentive to how I use it. In any case, I'll keep you all posted in the months to come as I make these great black and white landscape photos of the fields around me. And until next week, take some great photos. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.